0: stuff either way ladies and gentlemen hello welcome to another episode of the bumblebutt podcast x today my name is adam A. Bomb. sitting across from me as ever is herschel h-bomb and today herschel we're gonna have some fun no we're not we're gonna talk about a <laughs> sick bass. <bastard. Yeah>. Yeah. <laughs> we joined this story on november 3rd 1986 mm, i was born in 86 you're an 86 baby yeah well, shit. This gets more weird. Darren D. O'Neill is our scumbag for the week, mm. and he was a known drifter to family, friends, and law enforcement agencies across the country. Damn. On this unseasonably warm Monday, Darren drifted into the Twin Peaks backwoods of Washington State. Mm. So we're up north, we're west. Mm-hmm. Mm. The O'Neill family had always been traveling folk, and not the Irish kind. Darren's father, Daryl was a career army man, and when Darrell finally retired and settled down with his wife in Colorado Springs, Darren kept on moving, mm. mostly to stay one jump ahead of the lawman. Hmm. Darren wouldn't stay anywhere long, and as such, he hmm. had very few people who he could call friends. When he did choose to be around people, he preferred street people, or animals of the street as he called them. He didn't seek relationships out of any love for his fellow man or need for companionship, but out of a need for drugs or to try conning them into some new scam he was running.
1: Hmm, scumbag, yeah.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) People of the street, street animals, that's fucked up.
1: Yeah, because I don't think people, I don't think street animals strive to kick it with street animals. I just think it just kinda
0: street animals want to have a house and, and kick it with middle class people.
1: Yeah. You see people what I'm that
0: want to kick it with street animals are assholes and manipulators. Yeah, The biggest reason O'Neill hung out with society's rubbish, once again his mm-hmm. words, is because that's how he saw and thought of himself. Mm-hmm. And they were the least likely group of people to ever contact a police agency on him. Mm-hmm Upon his arrival in Washington, Darren promptly contacted an old friend he'd gone to high school with, who had also just moved back to the area. While rewarming and reacquainting, the old friend convinced O'Neill that both wife and women were pretty damn good up here. He should give up the nomad lifestyle and rent an apartment in town. Surprisingly, O'Neal said why the hell not to his pal and got himself one unit of a shabby duplex in Puyallup, a small town of about 18,000 people. He also quickly found work as a truck driver in nearby Tacoma. So he's staying in that general area, mm-hmm. the Seattle-Tacoma area. It took less than two months before the evil that had definitely bubbled over before did so again. On January 17th, 1987, Darren's job as a long-haul trucker took him about 130 miles south to Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Hauling on towards his destination, O'Neill saw a very attractive 14-year-old girl walking on an overpass and heading for a nearby convenience store. Darren's uncontrollable sex drive forced him to turn his rig right around for a second glance. This was a huge score for Darren. It was almost too good to be true. He parked his rig along the route she had come from and waited for her to return. Hmm. Darren's head was racing with excitement. He'd just gotten to the City of Roses, and already the perfect opportunity was before him. Mm. He quickly thought of the ideal plan to get her in the truck and lit up a camel filter while he waited for his victim to leave the store. Already, After five minutes, he used the last of his cigarette to light another and grew ever more anxious. Mm-hmm. He absentmindedly fiddled with the long-bladed hunting knife he kept on him. He didn't know it yet, but he was about to legally commit first-degree kidnapping with the sole purpose of causing physical and psychological injury.
1: Damn. Hey, the psychological, I wasn't expecting it. That's crazy. Yeah. And
0: that's like the letter of the law, too. Mm-hmm. That's what he was actually charged with later. Finally, the girl emerged from the store with an open bottle of pop in one hand and mm-hmm. a sack filled with candy in the other. There mm-hmm. was no time to lose, so Darren jumped into action. He hopped down from the driver's seat and went around to the sleeping quarters of the rig, pretending to be frustrated by an imaginary problem that his Mm -hmm. truck was having. Mm -hmm. He'd used this trick before to great acclaim, and there was no reason to believe it wouldn't work again. Mm. When the girl walked alongside the truck, he swung the door of the sleeping compartment open to block her forward progress, then stepped behind her to effectively block her in in all-one-fluid motion. He had to move quickly to evade detection. She was absolutely startled and looked up confused and smiling a little at her wild-eyed and hairy assailant. Hmm. He smiled back at her, but his eyes were completely black. Right. The lit camel was still dangling from his lips, and then he struck like a snake, grabbing her iron-tight by the front of her nylon jacket. hmm She was frozen, unable to scream or protest as Darren lifted her up by the coat and shoved her into the sleeping compartment. He jumped up in there after her and brandished his knife. He also told her he had a gun, but she never saw the three hundred fifty seven Ruger that was definitely in the back of his pants. Mm. In a very matter-of-fact way, he told her, If you scream or try to escape, I'll kill you. The victim was completely controlled by fear. She couldn't take her eyes off the knife Darren held, and it was having its intended effect of pacification. In fact, it was getting O'Neill really horny. Maybe I'll say turned on.
1: It's too late. Cause you gotta stay with Horty. Right, I'll keep it. I'm keeping it. He was a hornball after that knife came out. What a sicko.
0: The girl was terrified and young. Her instincts told her to keep quiet and follow orders. She allowed him to stuff a rag in her mouth and didn't resist as he tied her hands and feet. When he was sure everything was tied taut, Darren left the sleeping compartment and hopped back behind the wheel. Absolutely certain the abduction had been clean and free from puck. Po- p- mm-hmm. Clean and free from puck. Po- p- Fuck me. Clean and free from prying eyes, Darren started the rig and calmly pulled away from the curb and up onto the freeway. Mm -hmm. He headed south towards Clackamas County, his predetermined destination. 15 minutes later, he pulled off the highway onto a dark gravel road surrounded by trees and cut the engine. He hopped down, cracked himself a warm beer, a black label beer, which was his preferred brand, and he listened for anybody that might be around. He was 100% sure this was unfindable, but he wanted to make sure that he could take his time. The only sounds he could hear were the rain lightly thudding off the top of his rig and the wind in the trees. Of course, he could hear the girl whimpering in the apartment, but Mm -hmm. Darren didn't make a sound. He was reveling in the moment, drinking in her fear before he made his appearance. Mm -hmm. He finally climbed up in the compartment and silently sat next to the girl, keeping the knife directly in her field of view. O'Neill carefully removed her restraints and at one point drew back his hand as if to slap her. But the way she reacted and flinched proved to him that that would not be necessary for her compliance. Mm. She would already do anything. When he told her she was to do everything he commanded without hesitation or she would suffer dearly, she nodded as if it were the most obvious idea in the world. Like, of course that's what I'm going to do. He told her to remove her clothes and pushed her onto her back and began feeling her up and running the tip of the knife over her skin. He wriggled out of his own pants and forced himself on top of and inside of her. She didn't want to put herself in any more danger, so she did everything she was told, including oral sex. He would continue to rape her over the next two hours until he couldn't get an erection anymore. And When that occurred, O'Neill grabbed the pop bottle the girl was kidnapped with and forced it between her legs in anger. He carefully, yet forcefully, worked the neck of the bottle into her vagina. Now that the crimes had been committed, Darren had a real conundrum on his hands. Mm -hmm. If he finished the job by killing her, he'd probably not get caught. But if he did, that was a certain one-way ticket Mm -hmm. to the electric chair.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: He openly talked to himself about his options, one of them killing her, of course. But she cried, pleaded, and promised not to say a single word if he'd just let her go right here and she'd find her own way back home. Mm -hmm. Darren took satisfaction in remaining silent to her cries... Pretending to be lost in his own thought. Suddenly, he grinned and told her he was going to drive her down to California and sell her to Mexican sex slave ringers.
1: That's fucked up.
0: But in the end, after making her promise that she wouldn't say anything, he agreed to let her go, but not here. He made her dress, then ride up front with him as he drove her back to the city and dropped her off in a location where she could easily find her way home. When the 14-year-old girl walked in the door, thankfully and refreshingly, her parents were awake and in a full-blown panic about where the hell their daughter was. The victim's parents had already called police, but what were they told Herschel? Not enough time had passed to file a missing persons report. She was more than likely a statistical teen runaway. Well, when she walked in and recounted her story, the police were very, very interested. This reminds me of the other story we did, where he walked her home. Todd Colep, remember? yeah, I remember that? Oh Riding right her back to her shit. Yep. And the police were already there, like looking for. He was such
1: a her. nice boy. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Mama Colep. Yeah, dude. You fucking Regina. I still remember her name, Regina.
1: Trying to get a boy off, and then not try to get a boy off.
0: Oof. As soon as it became not her responsibility, mm-hmm. when he was a kid, she was like, "He's bad. He's the worst. He doesn't mean <laughs> any of it." Back to this case. Mm -hmm. The victim was rushed to a Portland area hospital where she was given a full exam and rape kit. After the testing, the girl was interviewed by Portland PD Detective Bill Carter. She described her attacker to the detective as a white male, about 160 pounds, with thick mustache and beard, and he had somewhat crooked teeth. Mm. Even with this rock star description... I left a lot of it out, but she mm-hmm. actually did have a great description mm-hmm. of Darren. It would be six months before she could positively ID her attacker as Darren D. O'Neill. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, Darren, already a master mm-hmm. of disguise and staying one step ahead of the law, moved from Puyallup, Puyallup. I don't know how to say it. Puyallup. That's what I'm going to say. So
1: as soon as he did that, that's when he skipped out
0: changed his haircut
1: moved down mm-hmm. so he would be the, so 6 months later he would be in pull up when well, probably not a fact Keep going my fault
0: sure and he moved to the nearby mm-hmm. town of Edgewood mm-hmm. he never returned to his trucking job and instead signed on as a cabinet laminator in his new town there was so, a company there
1: okay what's a you don't even know what a cabinet laminator is do you? well
0: somebody assembles the cabinet and then you put the laminate over the top. Okay. Make it protective uh, and stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe like, there's a like, huge uh, business for doing that. Doing the there. floors. Yeah, like, laminate on the, the floors. On, on um, cars. You know how you put the plastic on? Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah.
0: Almost two months after the attack in Oregon, Darren met attractive Mary Barnes at mm-hmm. Baldy's Tavern in Puyallup in March of 1987. Mm. Once Darren laid eyes on the young part-time barmaid, Baldy's Tavern became a daily hangout, with Mm -hmm. him hoping Mary was to be on the schedule before he walked in every day. Mm -hmm. Right off the bat, Mary was attracted to Darren's rugged manliness. Mm -hmm. He was a hairy fella, after Mm -hmm. all. The two really hit it off, and soon Mary moved into O'Neill's apartment. Mm -hmm. Mary was actually able to keep Darren sexually satisfied. But after a month, he started fantasizing about the perfect woman he wanted for himself. One he could move into the woods with and live out the rest of his days. Mary just wasn't going to be that girl. In the very wee hours of the morning on March 28th at Baldy's Tavern, just after midnight, O'Neill began making eyes at a beautiful woman seated just across the bar. Right keep in mind mary was bartending that night so he's just hitting on everything
1: damn the bartender the dude the dog this was the
0: fantasy woman to become a hermit with him her name was rockin robin smith mm-hmm. she was 22 years old 53 115 pounds blonde haired blue eyed there was one hiccup to darren's plan of committing himself mind body and soul to and her right on the spot and what's that she was at the bar with her fiancé,
1: 23-year-old Laren Croster. You know what? That'll definitely uh, put a hole in your plans, <laughs> Some man. Some
0: monkey wrench right <laughs> there. Like,
1: damn, you shouldn't even stop looking, but what did he do?
0: Well, what did he, he do? Yeah. O'Neill's first order of business had to be separating Laren from Robin so he could speak to her. Mm. Darren forced his girlfriend Mary to announce to the bar... There was going to be an after party at Darren and her apartment once the bar closed. Hmm. Small group of people, including Robin and Laren, went, and the drinking and partying continued well into the morning.
1: Would you do something like that?
0: I've d- I have done something. Damn! Like
1: somebody that. random motherfucker said at the party at Let's go. Shit.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean,
1: what's what's the what's that to be scared about? Everybody was, else is going. It was in. like
0: me, Casey, and I don't know if you ever met my tattoo mm. artist Jesse. Mm-mm. Was he there when you were there? Mm-mm. So it was mm-hmm. like what what's going on? but
1: but it was more than just y'all three. It was yeah, yeah.
0: like a bunch of people. Yeah,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I said, what's there to be sprayed of? Everybody mm-hmm. else is going like mm-hmm. Damn now it makes you just watch that shit, man.
0: Don't trust nobody.
1: Man. Bring your own drink. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Fuck. Especially after watching Dark Side of the Ring. All about yeah. wrestling and stuff, bro, and they would just mickey each other for fun. That. Yeah. yeah, that's so ridiculous. He's like, bro, you should watch that. Thing. You should watch that <laughs> shit, bro. It's, it's so the good. Dark side of the and it's just even, watch that it's thing. even people I didn't really care that much about, like and, Canyon. I don't care about Chris Canyon. Fucking great story. Uh, Fantastic. About,
1: wasn't he a jobber though?
0: He was a jobberito, but why was he a jobberito? Because he mm. was gay, and that was not cool in the wrestling business. And at they didn't notice. They did. Some people did. But Canyon was like a huge homophobe. Like, I don't have time for these fucking beep. You know what I'm saying? Mm. But that's kind of how closeted gay people are, I believe. They become yeah, self-hating yeah. and homophobic to yeah. the nth degree.
1: Yeah. they hate and, uh, on they hate on you being that way and then still be that way.
0: But the Pillman one was incredible. Brian Pillman. That's my boy. I love Brian Pillman. At 5 a.m., Darren finally got his wish to talk to Robin alone as Laren suddenly left the party to get his fishing gear. Mm -hmm. He was going to be picked up from his place at 6am from some other friends and he didn't want to miss the day on the lake. Mm -hmm. He kissed Robin goodbye and rushed out the door. Let's take a small break and talk about Rock and Robin
1: Smith. Mm -hmm. What's up with Rock?
0: She was born a tiny four pound baby to Edna and Stu Smith and was surrounded with love. At 12, the Smiths moved all the way across the country from Connecticut to the Pacific Northwest. Although Robin was considered serene and shy as a teenager, Mm -hmm. she absolutely loved dancing to music on the radio, hence the nickname Rocket Robin. Mm. Here's where I relate to her a bit. She wasn't always seen as a friendly child, which definitely happens to those that are uh, cripplingly shy. Mm -hmm. Robin was seen to be cold or aloof, but really, she was a deep, complex being, fully devoted to her friends and family. According to her family, that shyness never left Robin, and it took a lot of effort to get to know her. Hmm. It was only after you really put in the work that she would become comfortable enough to give you her insight, and only one or two outside of her family would ever know her innermost feelings. Otherwise, Robin kept it in. Like a lot of kids, Robin was afraid of the dark. Like the shyness, Stu and Edna thought Robin would outgrow this phase, Mm -hmm. but just like the shyness, she never did. She was much more comfortable just staying at home than her classmates. She did do some things to gain acceptance from her peers, like smoking cigarettes, but never really did anything to cause her parents actual grief or worry. Even though Robin got good grades in school, she hated going there, and it wasn't long before Edna was barely able to get her out of bed for it. Mm -hmm. Still, even occasionally showing up late didn't cause problems for anyone. She was just a good kid. She ran across a problem too difficult to solve or someone was picking on her, she could always run to her mother for help and guidance, and Edna was mm-hmm. always receptive and ready to help. I sound like a regular kid. Exactly. Just a fucking girl. Just a regular girl. Mm-hmm. In 1978, Stu and Edna split up, and that was a catastrophic year for uh, young Robin. She mm-hmm. withdrew completely into her own shell, didn't speak a single word to Edna for over a year. Damn. Fast forward a couple years, by 1982, Robin was not exactly Mrs. Outgoing but she was really coming into her own. She'd upgraded Mm -hmm. herself from shut-in to Wallflower, and Robin ran with two other girls named Julie and Trish, and they were inseparable, shattering Robin past Wallflower and into the life of the party status. Damn. This group obviously, since they were so tight, earned the nickname of the Three Musketeers. Mm. Just a few months into this new Robin, Trish suddenly told the group she was moving to California to find a job and live with a friend. Robin was in a world of hurt to see her confidant go, but didn't make it Trish's problem. She only tearfully told her friend to stay away from drugs and prostitution. Mm -hmm. And if anything ever felt wrong, come back, come straight home. You don't have to stay with your parents. You can stay with my parents because you're more than welcome to stay with Robin Mm -hmm. and Edna. Sweet. Two months later, out of the blue, Robin gets a call from Trish. There was something in Trish's voice that made Robin uneasy. But she was being tight-lipped, and Robin didn't want to push. She just reminded Trish she was welcome anytime. Mm-hmm. Two days later, while Robin was watching the news, she saw a report of a young girl who'd been murdered on the Sea-Tac Strip. Damn. This was a busy, busy street of restaurants, stores, and hotels on the way to the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Mm-hmm. But that couldn't have been Trish. She was in California. Right. More than likely Robin thought this was another victim of the Green River Killer who'd been preying on prostitutes all over Washington. Mm. You see Herschel, for every fancy hotel on the SeaTac strip, there were two sex motels. Prostitutes there came in two forms, those on the way up and those on the way down, mm. and both plied their trade everywhere along the strip. Mm. Naturally, when this girl was found dead, the public chalked it up to the Green River Killer and mm. just another prostitute who mm. met an early and unpleasant end.
1: Just a streetwalker did.
0: And just another, another, another whore no, did.
1: We're fine, we're not streetwalkers.
0: We're regular people. Yeah. Police, on the other hand, knew this wasn't the work of Green River Killer.
1: Hmm.
0: Although the victim was indeed a prostitute, her murder didn't fit his MO. The cops couldn't initially ID the girl. She'd been raped and then stabbed to death in an upstairs unit of an apartment building. Hmm. Afterwards, her nude body was tossed off of the balcony. Soon, police released a photo of the dead girl's face to help ID her in the paper. Hmm. A former classmate came forward and confirmed it was Trish. Damn. Robin almost came completely unglued by grief.
1: No wonder did she lie all alone that she was in California.
0: Absolutely. I think she was ashamed to say what she, she was, was really going to do. Be street she was about to turn herself out, I think. Despite warnings from family, friends, and police, Robin went down to the apartment complex and started knocking on doors and asking people questions. Mm hmm. Finally, an officer was able to talk some sense into her and made her stay away from the place so they could conduct their investigation. Although Robin never got over Trish's murder, her and Julie had each other to lean on, and eventually, they would accept what happened to their best friend.
1: Just the two of us. We, we can make, make it every if dry. We try. Just the two of us.
0: Bonnie and Clyde, seven, <laughs> me and my daughter. Flashback forward to Laren. Robin's Mm -hmm. fiancé returning from his fishing trip to find an empty apartment. She should have been home from Darren and Mary's after party by Mm -hmm. now. Fearing for Robin's safety, Laren called Robin's mom Edna, and the two went to the Pierce County Sheriff's Department to report her missing. Mm -hmm. First place the cops checked was Robin's last known sighting, Mary and Darren's apartment. Mary answered the door and told Detectives Walt and Wilson that she'd left the apartment during the party for a few hours. When she returned... Darren was gone, as well as Robin, a bunch of camping equipment, food, clothing, and an electrical cord for the television. Detectives certainly thought that part was strange. Mm. According to Mary, O'Neill, often carried a knife on his belt and another in his boot. She also said Darren had survivalist skills from his time as a Green Beret and Army Ranger.
1: Yeah, that's definitely too many knives just for a regular walk. Like yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
0: And why do you need camping gear and shit? Yeah. You you're what? with a you're with Mary and she's engaged to Laren, so mm-hmm. why would you go on an unannounced camping trip?
1: Yeah, that's strange.
0: Investigators discovered that Darren had no special forces training and was in fact just an enlisted man in the regular army. Mm. Mary said her boyfriend O'Neill usually dressed in western wear, including jeans, boots, and a cowboy hat. He would also frequently change his appearance by growing and cutting his head and facial Mm -hmm. hair. For example, one day he'd have a mullet and a mustache, and the next time you saw him, he'd have a crew cut and a goatee. He would also sometimes add in wire rim glasses. At about 1.30 p.m. on the day Robin failed to return home, Mm -hmm. Darren O'Neill showed up at a friend's place driving a 1972 Chrysler New Yorker with Montana plates. Mm -hmm. He explained to the friend that he was going away for a while, and asked the friend to watch one of his dogs, and also give him a check so he could pick up a truck where he was going. O'Neal walked back to the car to get the dog, and the friend noticed something was hitting the back seat from the trunk, like hard.
1: You probably like...
0: O'Neal said it was the other dog, and he had it in there as a form of punishment. The friend Uh said, That's fucking sick. You don't put a dog in a trunk for any reason. And then he took O'Neal's dog and walked away without writing him that check. He Drove right off. Not the dog in the trunk, mind you, the one that he asked him uh, about. No, nah,
1: yeah, yeah. I already knew that wasn't the dog in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> I already knew that. O'Neill. <laughs> a form of punishment?
0: Yeah, I guess he was being a bad dog.
1: No, nah, dude knew what that was, but he was faking himself out. I think like, so too. Like, nah, no, that couldn't have been.
0: There's no way. Yeah. Darren wouldn't do that. O'Neill's friend told detectives Wilson and Walt that Darren seemed very nervous and was definitely hiding something. Mm -hmm. Also, he didn't hear a dog barking from the trunk, which Mm. should have accompanied the thumps against the back seat. Mm -hmm. Later, Robin's relatives found the second dog that was supposedly in the trunk abandoned and hungry in Darren's apartment. Mm. A little later in the evening, a man fitting Darren O'Neill's description of a teardrop tattoo on his cheek and June tattooed across his knuckles got treatment at a local hospital for facial cuts and scrapes. Mm. The next morning, witnesses saw the same identifying marks on a man at the Safeway grocery store in Enumclaw, Washington. He bought pastry, cigarettes, and black label beer.
1: That's kind of, you don't think that's strange to go get treated for cuts and scrapes?
0: And not offer like an explanation. I'm sure he did. I'm mm. sure he was like, I got drunk But even still down.
1: just to go. Like, why do you need to go to the doctor for that first of all? That's
0: true. Just put some Neosporin on it or whatever. Yeah,
1: do you want to get caught? Or identify? Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. I
1: don't
0: know. Investigators would later discover that Black Label beer was his preferred brand. Mm-hmm. Just two hours later, a construction worker remembered seeing a guy that looked like Charles Manson driving yeah. an old Chrysler New Yorker waiting in traffic for road work near the Greenwater area of Mount Rainier. I, I can imagine that.
1: Damn, this motherfucker looked like Charles Manson. This motherfucker. In the New Yorker. Did he break and, out? Yeah. <laughs> <and> <laughs> fucking... Chrysler New Yorker. <laughs>
0: you sticking out, my dude? The construction worker remembered him specifically because unlike every other car going up the mountain, he did not have skis on the top. Mm -mm. Also unlike everyone else, this guy pulled off the road down a small logging service road, Mm -hmm. waited for 20 minutes, then turned around and came back the way he'd come. So what the fuck was he doing? It was during this time, when he was spotted by the construction worker, that detectives theorized Darren pulled off the highway and onto that logging road in order to dump Robin's
1: corpse. Mm. Couldn't because of the goddamn
0: workers. He actually did, but he went down that logging road, and then they kind of lost sight of him, came back, came back the way he came.
1: He already dumped it, and he was out. About 20
0: minutes, that sounds yeah. about right. But, but the they Jake still, is at yeah. this point, they hadn't recovered Robin's body. Uh-huh. They didn't know, They don't know where she is. Thankfully, the investigation so far found enough hinky shit that Mm -hmm. the usual wait time to file a missing persons report was waived. It was completely out of character for a single Robin to run away with Darren O'Neill, let alone one so happily engaged to Laren Croston. Mm -hmm. APBs were put out on both Robin Smith and Darren Mm O'Neill. He was described as 5'11", 170 pounds, medium build, blue eyes, blonde hair, light complexion. He also had a vertical scar on his right cheek and a small five-point star tattoo that looks like a teardrop. Mm. That's the... People thought it was a teardrop, but it was a little... Five-point star. Another day passed, and on Monday, March 30th, 1987, Darren's Chrysler New Yorker was found abandoned near a rest stop 15 miles from Everett, Washington, Mm -hmm. north of Seattle, on Interstate 5. Inside the trunk, detectives found the blood-soaked jacket that belonged to Robin Smith, two teeth, a bone fragment, and a heavily blood-stained interior. Hmm. Police suspected O'Neill had beaten Robin with a hammer or some other heavy instrument while she was in the trunk, and detectives at this point gave up all hope that Robin was still alive. Her mother, Edna, however, could not.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, just a stream of uh, uh, snatchings and nobody coming back up, you will have to assume, yeah, that's it.
0: But if you're a mom... It's always hope. You can't give up. Can't give up hope. When Detectives Wilson and Wyatt searched O'Neill's apartment, they Mm -hmm. found a clue in Darren's own handwriting. It was an outline for future plans, which ultimately ended with him hermiting himself in the woods and living off only the bare necessities. Among these necessities were a copy of the Bible and several novels by the author Louis L'Amour, specifically from the series he would write about the Sackett family in the Wild West. Hmm. Wilson and Watt also found several Western living and cowboy magazines throughout the apartment. Hmm. So he really wanted to cosplay as a cowboy. He wanted to to go to Westworld, I think. Mm -hmm. Wilson soon learned from a colleague in Idaho that while drifting in that state, O'Neill had gone by the name of Larry Sackett, a Mm -hmm. character in one of the novels. More evidence of Darren's Western obsession surfaced, when an insurance card was found in the name of Zebulon J. McCranahan, Zebulon. another name from a Lamore book, like Zebulon. detectives started to believe that this cowboy fantasy might help them get to the bottom of Robin's disappearance. Mm-hmm. Despite police's urges to just let them do their job and investigate, Mother Edna was not having it, and thought police were shitting this whole thing up. She orchestrated a bunch of volunteers to storm O'Neal's apartment and search Mm -hmm. it thoroughly top to bottom.
1: I agree with the first part. The second part, no.
0: You wouldn't do like an unauthorized break and enter search of somebody of a killer's apartment?
1: I guess if they already searched it, yes, maybe. Especially if I'm hiring my own people. Sure. Well, volunteers. Volunteers, they they don't know shit? They just watch SVU and criminal shows or something?
0: They found syringes, drug vials, and paraphernalia the police had missed. They also found signs of a bloody struggle. Upon interviewing Mary, they suspected her of harboring and hiding O'Neill's in the hours right after Robin's Mm -hmm. disappearance. Still under Edna's direction, the group of vigilante investigators paid Mm -hmm. a visit to the friend O'Neill had gone to drop off that dog. They questioned him at length, and he certainly appeared sweaty and nervous. Mm -hmm. Soon enough... A junkie acquaintance of O'Neill's and another man came out from the garage where they were lurking Damn. and waiting for the posse to go away.
1: It looked like what it looked like.
0: They began talking to the group about the day O'Neill showed up. The junkie said O'Neill had popped the trunk and they'd all seen a woman's leg in there. Just then, O'Neill's friend told the junkie to shut up and elbowed him in the ribs.
1: You're like, hey, y'all need to talk to him then. Bye! <laughs>
0: <laughs> the junkie continued and described a purple and white sock that would eventually be found with Robin's remains in the forest mm. near Greenwater. When the posse reported all of these incredible findings to the police, they, of course, discounted the junkie story straight away because he was a junkie. junkie. Yeah. Edna, of course, knew what we know, that the junkie and the friend knew much more than they were letting on. And that's
1: on. what I was saying. Like, I wouldn't have hit him in the ribs. I just would have been like, all right, cool. Talk to the junkie. He knows everything.
0: I'll see you never. Yeah, exactly. but then you're still implicated because it's your property. You it is, there.
1: but at least you know when to get out of dodge or hide your story straight.
0: Yeah, I mean it's the jig's up. If they wanted to, they could have pressed. But
1: yeah, but he but he didn't have anything to do with that girl being murdered.
0: Edna didn't give up her search for Robin. Even consulting a known psychic in the area who offered her services free of charge. She directed Edna to the Greenwater area near Mount Rainier and said that her daughter was in or near an area Mm -hmm. with running water. Despite an overnight snowfall and the overwhelming odds that they wouldn't find Robin's remains, Edna and 50 plus volunteers hit the Greenwater area and really gave it their all.
1: The jig is up, bro.
0: At the end of the first day's search, there was still no sign of Robin, mm-hmm. but there were signs of progress. Yellow ribbons had been tied around every tree that Robin wasn't found by, mm-hmm. so searchers wouldn't double dip, and there were a hell of a lot of yellow ribbon trees. Mm. Police said after the first day that, in the very slim chance Robin was still alive, she had already lost a lot of blood and was likely losing more based on the carnage found in O'Neill's trunk. Mm. On the second day of the search, they actually got within a hundred yards of Robin's remains which mm. were at the time being eaten by coyotes and other animals. Mm-hmm. They all agreed afterwards that they were happy they didn't find Robin in that condition, and they were likely happy to all be together during this awful time and mm-hmm. didn't need to see anything so terrible.
1: Mm. That would have hurt. It's <laughs>
0: probably better to be busy in those initial days of grief, like you know, looking for her, hoping that she's still alive. You don't want to see her half eaten.
1: And you know what I hate to, you know, and not about this. You know how you, you look for something like a possession? Oh, yeah. It, dude, it's the last place you look. I wish. I wish it was. Like, dude, I wish the first place that I looked was the last place that I yep. looked. Because it's always in the last place you look.
0: Process of elimination. And it always goes to the last place. Mm-hmm. Or the first place and you didn't see it for some reason.
1: Oh, I, I hate that one.
0: Like, I'm looking for the thing. Like, stared right at it. And for some reason my brain yeah, pretended didn't, it didn't yeah. exist.
1: Like, like oh, man. And that happens with a lot with moms, too. Go get it out of it, mama. I don't see it, mama. Mm-hmm. If I go in there and find that, mm-hmm. you get the whooping. Damn, I'm getting the whooping, Because yep. <laughs> I know. It's just like before you even go in there, you know you getting the whooping. Oh, dog. yeah. She's going to find it, bro. Like, did she do that on purpose? I swear, bro. She's a witch, bro. <laughs> I'm a warlock. over am to try to get myself out of this ass when i disappear disappearing and shit. Shit. <laughs> <Yeah, dude>.
0: Shit. <laughs> The clue that finally locked Darren to the Chrysler New Yorker came when detectives located the guy it was stolen from. Mm-hmm. A long-haul trucker had befriended O'Neill in Nampa, Idaho after picking him up as a hitchhiker. The man claimed that the hitchhiker had identified himself as Jerry Zebulon McCranahan, mm. and he resided with the man in his home from October 15th through November 2nd, 1986. So he picked up a hitchhiker, picked up our boy Darren, And And then we're just like, hey, stay with me for the next fucking two weeks. He homed him. He did home him. On November 2nd, uh, the man said that he had left for a job and had entrusted the Chrysler to McCranahan during his absence so he could run errands and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. When he returned home on the 4th, he found the vehicle, a three fifty seven Ruger, $200 in cash, and Zebulon McCranahan all missing. Mm -hmm. man promptly identified McCranahan as Darren Mm O'Neill when they showed him a photo spread. Mm -hmm. They said, show me Zebulon, (laughs) Darren.
1: So, but he filed the report then. Yeah, Yeah. but it was in Idaho. Right, so So they ain't communicating like that. And they
0: thought that his name was Zebulon Jerry McCranahan. (laughs) The Pierce County detective soon turned up O'Neill's extensive criminal history. But it would still be at least two months before they linked him to the January kidnapping and rape charges involving our first girl in Portland. And that's just our first girl in the story. That is not the first girl. Mm -hmm. They discovered that he was arrested on March 12, 1982 in Colorado Springs for obstructing police and disturbing the peace. Mm -hmm. In September 82, he was cited for damaging private property and committing third-degree assault. Mm -hmm. In October 82, he was again cited for public drinking. In November 84, he was charged with first-degree sexual assault, a charge that was later reduced to Mm. aggravated robbery. Those charges were ultimately dismissed because the complaining witness happened to be a prostitute Mm -hmm. and could not be located for the trial. In July 1986, O'Neill committed a second-degree sexual assault for which he was arrested and Mm -hmm. later skipped out on bail-on. There were also a number of public indecency offenses on his record, such as urinating and defecating Mm. in public.
1: Yeah, he didn't give a fuck.
0: On April 24th, 1987, an individual who identified himself as Mike James Johnson was hired as a bartender at the La Paloma restaurant Mm -hmm. in Bellingham, Washington. It was there that O'Neal, posing as Johnson, met the pretty lady, Wendy Mm -hmm. Ogg, 29-year-old beauty school student and mother of two children. O'Neal and Ogg were last seen together leaving the La Paloma on April 25th during the early morning hours. Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly... Og was not heard from again, and worried family members reported her unexplained disappearance to the police. Mm. A subsequent search of Ogg's Bellingham apartment revealed signs of a struggle, pools of blood, and blood-soaked bedsheets and linen. Mm-hmm. Peter tracks, aka dried semen, was also found on the bedsheets. The considerable evidence found inside Wendy Ogg's apartment suggested that a sexual assault had occurred there.
1: Who says Peter tracks? That's
0: a ridiculous thing to say.
1: Who, who, where, where did you get that? Where did you get that?
0: That's from the research, baby.
1: And they say Peter tracks. Somebody oh, said okay. Peter tracks. All right. Is that I a, had to is put that, it in there. Is that Googleable?
0: I don't know yet. <laughs> Somebody will find out. That's for sure. After an APB was issued for O'Neill... A U.S. customs agent soon reported having taken a photograph of O'Neill driving Ogg's car as he came back across the border into the U.S. from Canada mm. in the time frame when Wendy disappeared. O'Neill was the only person visible in the car in that spot check photo. Mm. A week later, on Saturday, May mm-hmm. 2nd, 1987, mm. Aug's 1972 Ford Torino was found abandoned in Eugene, Oregon, And a man later identified as O'Neill was reported as having been seen at several locations in downtown Eugene attempting to sell a gold chain. According to Detective J.T. Parr of the Eugene PD, fingerprints taken from a food wrapper in Ogg's Automobile and from a job application submitted by Johnson were eventually identified as those of Darren D. O'Neill. So the dragnet's closing, Mm -hmm. that's for sure. Police by now admitted that it could be difficult to find Darren. Mm-hmm. His history clearly showed that he changed his hairstyle and appearance frequently, and the effect was often dramatic. Wanted posters distributed shortly after Wendy Ogg's disappearance expressed a new sense of mm-hmm. urgency, because the police now feared that O'Neill had killed twice, could be ready to strike again at any time. Mm-hmm. Both Robin and Wendy, police pointed out, were met by O'Neill on a Friday, and disappeared late on a Friday night or early Saturday. Mm -hmm. Both cars, Wendy's and the Chrysler, were believed dumped on a Monday morning. The two occurrences were exactly four weeks apart, and the four-week anniversary of Wendy's disappearance was quickly approaching. Murder charges were filed against O'Neill, in part due to Edna's urging the police to do something in connection with Robin's death, despite the fact that her remains had not yet been located. Police agreed that the heavier charge of murder would help intensify the effort to locate O'Neal, freeing up more resources, mm. investigators, that kind of stuff. Right. With Edna's assistance, wanted-for-murder posters were distributed to all stores selling books by O'Neal's favorite author, Louis L'Amour, mm. and to beauty shops because O'Neill often had his hair permed in mm. other locations throughout western Washington because of concerns that O'Neill was still in the Puget Sound area. A possible sighting... Only one of many had been reported a week earlier near Mount Rainier.
1: That's actually pretty um smart to do. That's brilliant. Yeah. When
0: I when I first read that, I was like, wow, they I I wouldn't have thought of any of those things. Like going to Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. That's his favorite author, Louis mm-hmm. L'Amour. Maybe they sold him some fucking seemed, Louis Lamore books. It
1: would've sounds like too like some part of the force is probably writing it off and some parts of the force are really taking the fucking job seriously. It's
0: usually how it works, isn't it? Until they get like a task force assembled or something. On Monday, May 25th, 1987, the day that Memorial Day was officially observed that year, skeletal remains were discovered by hikers in the same general wooded area previously searched by Edna Mm -hmm. and her volunteers near Greenwater. It was the same area in which the psychic had directed Edna to search, and the remains were scattered over an area near a running stream, like she said, on or near running water.
1: You know I'm always... When somebody says a shit like that, that's crazy to me.
0: It doesn't make sense how, like, because we had that famous psychic on here too when we were doing that old mm-hmm. school one. And he, like, had three things right. Yeah. yeah I remember, and I was, he sat on the gravestones I did, and that... Bro,
1: that was, I was freaked out that whole night. Well, at least two hours after that. A couple hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I got over yeah. it. Uh, then he, yeah. And then there's work to go. I can't be yeah. worried about this psychic. Oh, yeah, for, for sure,
0: bro. Some of the remains were collected and several pieces of clothing and personal identification belonging to Robin were found nearby, Mm -hmm. partially buried beneath a rotting tree stump. Detective Stout, other investigators, and explorer scouts went out to the site and searched the area. Edna was notified that the remains could be those of her daughters after a Pierce County medical examiner concluded that the bones belonged to a Caucasian female in her early 20s with blonde hair.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: after being told that more bones were needed specifically jaw and teeth to make a positive id edna again pushed the issue with the sheriff's department and insisted that a more thorough search of the area be conducted Hmm. she was told that searchers would go back out and excavate the wooded area just as soon as time and manpower allowed they keep shifting her off like and she's got the fucking right of it they searched the if they would have had an actual police search, they would have discovered her remains way back when they were doing yellow ribbons.
1: She came up with... Mo- if you give her that information about the, um, you know, that they did, that was smart, going to check the parent places, she would have been gone with that shit. Easy. She's a beast, bro.
0: They should put a little star on her chest they and should, make her bro. the fucking lead detective here.
1: They should, bro. Damn, re- re- redo it, because I had to redo the house.
0: Yeah. We're going to go back over everything that you've done because you obviously
1: suck at this. And then I know she kicking herself and kicking herself because she's like, damn, I should have just kept searching and I would have been found her.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because you
1: said it was like 100 yards from where they already searched. They
0: were within 100 yards of her. Yep.
1: And I know and I know when they heard that the creek with the stream, you like we checked there, but God we God. didn't check there. It was right there, honey.
0: The I'm just, I bet you could see one of the trees that they tied a yeah, the ribbon bro. on from where her body was. Yeah, yeah. Edna couldn't wait for the sheriff's department, which was already overworked and understaffed, and took it upon herself to go to the location to dig and search for the additional bones mm-hmm. and teeth needed to make a positive ID. As a result of her efforts, which consisted of hands and knees searches over a two-week period, she found the additional bones that were needed, including a jawbone. After a dental comparison of the jawbone was conducted, authorities positively concluded that the remains were indeed those of Robin Smith. Robin, said the police, had been beaten to death with a heavy object like a hammer. Mm -hmm. An additional search of the area turned up a rusty hammer in the nearby stream. Mm. At this time, Laren Croston was even more despondent over her fiance's death, despite the fact that he had done everything he could to help the police find the killer. He continued to blame himself, saying that he shouldn't have left O'Neill's apartment and gone fishing. Edna did everything she could to try and comfort him, but to no avail. He eventually sought professional help and was placed on antidepressants. Mm, But that's nothing to be wrong. Nothing nothing wrong with that. I got mine right over there.
1: Because he went, because he went fishing though.
0: Which everybody goes fishing. You you just don't expect your fiance to get murdered. But everybody goes fishing. And and, and this was, and this was the next day though, right? The very next. Yeah. It was like four hours later that he came back. Mm -hmm. Like that afternoon, he came back to the apartment. Was like, where the hell's she? Should be back from Darren's by now.
1: I wouldn't have never left my girl there though.
0: I guess not. Yeah.
1: No, I'm. Well, I could. Hey, if I'm a. I'm, we well, need let's, to hit. I'm trying to hit before I go fishing too. Like you know what I'm saying. Fish. Yeah, like I don't know. even if I ain't trying to hit. If I got about to go eat, I'm finna do it with my girl. Yeah, you know what I'm no, saying. We let's, out. Let's get some Denny's. Exactly. Like I'm not finna leave my girl, bro. At no strange place where everybody's strangers.
0: All the time. Ta- well, they're all bar friends from Baldy's Tavern. Meanwhile, on Sunday, June 13th, 1987, while detectives in Washington and Oregon were busy running down leads to Mm O'Neill's whereabouts, the nude body of Leah Elizabeth Schubert, 22, was discovered by a passing motorist along I-84 in eastern Oregon, Mm -hmm. about 12 miles east of the town of La Grande. Mm -hmm. When the motorist stopped to relieve himself at the side of the road, it was near dusk, and he spotted a frighteningly familiar form lying at the bottom of an embankment. When he investigated further, he discovered, much to his horror, that it was the dead nude body of a rapidly decomposing female. Mm-hmm. Horrified, he reported his grim discovery to Oregon State Police. Following an autopsy, the cause of Schubert's death was listed as strangulation.
1: Mm. You well, so did not, uh, never mind. <laughs> cause, uh, cause all <laughs> Just cut this part out, though. Mm-hmm. So he probably wanted to drive off when he seen the body. I know I would, but he accidentally pissed on it, and it was like, "Yo, this now if they up. find, yeah, it's gonna look like I did something, and I yeah. didn't have nothing to do with this." Just so had to pee. Let me go ahead and let <laughs> yeah, you study telling you find some piss on it. G. I did it just a little bit, bro. Like I didn't want to. Yeah, like I really just pulled up, bro. Oh, I'm oh. oh no. Was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote.
0: According to Detective Howells of the Twin Falls, Idaho Police Department, the case involving Schubert unfolded like this. Mm-hmm. Schubert was traveling alone from Twin Falls to Boise on June 9th, 1987, en route to the airport to pick up her fiancé, Dwayne Abbott, who was mm-hmm. coming to visit from San Diego. Mm-hmm. Along the way, she developed car trouble and called a friend from a gear jammer truck stop near Mountain Home, Idaho, along I-84. This was the last time anyone heard from her. She was reporting as a missing person later that evening. Mm -hmm. Several individuals at the truck stop described a male individual matching Darren O'Neill's description as having been present in the area of the truck stop prior to Schubert's disappearance. Mm -hmm. He was also spotted several times a couple hundred miles to the north in Spokane, several hours after Schubert's disappearance. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Edna wanted to lay Robin to rest with a proper burial, but Robin's remains were kept in Pierce County Evidence Locker. She threatened to get a court order to enable her to bury the remains, but was told that if and when O'Neill was apprehended, his lawyer could request that forensic experts mm-hmm. examine the remains, which would mean that she would yeah. have to be exhumed. Mm-hmm. As a result, Edmund decided to wait to bury her daughter. For the time, began praying at a memorial complete with a statue of the Virgin Mary for Robin that she had constructed in her backyard. She also traveled to the Greenwater area where she regularly placed flowers on the spot where most of mm. Robin's remains were found.
1: In our case is like, if we let you do this, you know what I mean? Like, the case, you know, like the foul that they got on this dude, if we let oh, you yeah. do that, we don't have the murder anymore.
0: Exactly. Please just... Yeah.
1: I mean, we know we know what's up, but it is what it is, man. I mean, we know we fucked
0: this entire thing up, and you had to dig your own fucking daughter's bones out of yeah. the forest in order for us to do anything about it. And we didn't listen to you about anything, including we the did. junkie, which could have saved other girls' lives at the same <laughs> and fucking still, time.
1: You said they never even questioned they the don't. junkie They anything. don't.
0: That shit's fine. Which is, is crazy, whatever.
1: because if, they, if he mentioned, well, it's too late at this point, too, though. And he's a junkie. In
0: studying O'Neal's M.O., investigators saw that he had considerable success being able to obtain his victims from country-western bars, mm. of course, love to frequent. Mm-hmm. Some witnesses described him as a compulsive liar and a braggart while well, others said he appeared complimentary and charming to women. And mm. All those can be yeah. the same, yeah. yeah. He was portrayed as a heavy drinker, coke user, and a Percodan abuser, mm. and was known to take drugs orally as well as spiking them in the old arm.
1: Doe here, Ryan.
0: Mm-hmm background also showed that o'neill was born february 26 1960 in albuquerque new mexico mm-hmm. his parents daryl and Krista o'neill resided in colorado springs colorado o'neill has two older brothers michael and kevin and one younger sister Kristen. Mm-hmm. since o'neill's father was an army career man o'neill consequently had traveled extensively in his youth he was in bad tolts germany mm-hmm. until 1976 thereafter moving with his family to Fort Polk, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. The detectives discovered that Darren had been looked at as a suspect in sexual crimes in Germany and other locations where he lived while both living with his parents and while he himself served out a term of enlistment in the
1: army. Sex crime abroad? Sex crimes abroad? They, they treated him the same way, right? I don't know. We did one. You have it to get
0: extradited, I imagine. Yeah, but they were getting extradited mm-hmm. back, right? To America or mm-hmm. no?
1: Honestly, bro, I wouldn't know. Cause I, because, like you said, they get extradited for this. They have to where They get extradited to yep. another country for their acts, too.
0: Well, when I was looking for this guy, because the last <laughs> piece of information about him says he's locked up in Washington. Mm-hmm. I searched all of Washington's prisoner databases. Turns out he's he's been extradited to Oregon. And that's where I found him. That's where he is right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe they won't. They time. You know, we get our time at the same time. Because mm-hmm. uh, they do get paid. For that, too, though, for inmates,
0: yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, let me get some of that. Yeah, pass me some of that federal money. <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> O'Neill attended a high school in the Fort Polk, Louisiana area, and later married his high school sweetheart June Hodges. Mm-hmm. O'Neill has one son by June who was born on November 20th, 1981, named Chris O'Neill. Christopher was being raised by O'Neill's parents while O'Neill was on the run, who legally adopted him after O'Neill ran afoul of the law. So his Mm -hmm. grandparents are now his legal parents, because Darren's a fucking asshole. Although O'Neill was not formally divorced from June, he had a common-law wife who resides in Leviton, Pennsylvania. From that relationship, another son, Jason, was born. After O'Neill enlisted in the Army, he served for a short time in Bremerhaven, Germany, and was discharged on February 28, 1982. Mm-hmm. Thereafter, O'Neill returned to Colorado Springs and began his known criminal history where we are today. At one point, Detective Terry Wilson and the Pierce County Sheriff's Department asked the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit to do a psychological profile, and the FBI complied. He fit their classic profile of a serial killer, and they theorized that he might have been acting out fantasy that stemmed from his affinity for Louis L'Amour Westerns when he abducted and killed Robin Smith. Additional witnesses told police that he frequently fantasized about living out in the wilderness. Mm. Because of O'Neill's captivation with Louis L'Amour's writing, because he had written several letters to the author, Mm. Pierce County authorities at one point asked the author L'Amour for his help in their search of O'Neill, but to no avail. (laughs) Apparently, Lamore had never heard of O'Neill, yeah. had not been contacted by him. Right. Also, as a result of the FBI's profile and O'Neill's fascination with the outdoors, the Green River Task Force started looking closely at O'Neill mm. as a possible suspect for those serial killers. And, and, he was, of course, ruled out.
1: And what are the chances that this dude writes what he actually lives? It's a fantasy, probably what he's writing. You know what I mean? Like, he's probably not even in the West, he's in the city. Louis Lamore? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And not to mention, if he did get fan mail, it probably went to, like, a fan mail service. Yeah, and like, get, yeah. it all
1: get burned. Yep. <laughs> but they
0: thought, like, I don't know, they were in contact or something because he was so obsessed. But that's not how that works.
1: I mean, it don't hurt. If he's if he's willing to cooperate and answer these questions, then we ask him the question.
0: That's it. But it was a dead end. P- completely closed door. Dead fucking end. <laughs>
1: he like, but thanks, though, for mm-hmm. letting me know there's a maniac.
0: As their hunt for O'Neill continued, investigators learned from witnesses that O'Neill actually knew very little about the outdoors, despite mm-hmm. that he was obsessed with being a rugged outdoorsman. Mm-hmm. He was a fucking poser. <laughs> they uncovered <laughs> information that showed O'Neill claimed to have worked on a relative's horse ranch in Montana mm-hmm. and often spoke about moving to Alaska, Montana, Colorado, or Canada. Mm-hmm. But they found no trace of him in any of those states mm-hmm. and no relative's horse ranch either. Mm-hmm. After moving throughout the Midwestern and Southern states and living under a number of aliases throughout the summer of 87, O'Neill's growing notoriety in suspected crimes got him a place on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. At one point, he took the name John Mayo and found himself a new girlfriend down in Tennessee. Mm. He lived with the woman for a while and ditched her in Louisiana. He stole her car and fled to Lakeland, Florida, where he settled briefly. Following a high speed and eventual foot chase following a traffic violation, O'Neill was arrested on September 22nd, 1987. Hmm.
1: 1987, eh?
0: It was after his extradition to Louisiana that authorities learned his true identity. He wasn't Mr. Mayo. Thanks in part to the astuteness of a rookie female (laughs) officer who took the initiative to have his prints examined by the State Bureau of Criminal Identification Mm -hmm. in February of 88 after acting on a hunch that...
1: Leave it to a rookie, though, man. Mayo was a fake name. Leave it to a rookie, though, bro. Always. Yeah.
0: They're the ones that are actually looking for stuff. The people that are grained into their ways, they just think it's all textbook. It's all blah, 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 blah. They're not looking for the side shit.
1: you a rookie, ain't you?
0: Investigators from Pierce County Sheriff's Department, Bellingham Police Department, and Oregon State Police promptly traveled to Louisiana to talk to O'Neill and to plan their strategy in the complicated cases they were investigating. Of course, he refused to talk to any of them. Nonetheless, O'Neill was eventually extradited to Washington State, but not before Edna Smith put up a major fight to bring him back. Basically, she had to get him fucking extradited back to Washington. Because she has to do fucking everything mm, for these balloon animals. So, who does she write to? The
1: governor. And you said her name, Emmett Smith? <laughs> <laughs> Emmett
0: Smith, get me out of here. <laughs> Edna Smith, that's the mom. Yeah, I know, but I'm like, did he just say Emmett Emmett Smith. <laughs> Number twenty-two, baby, running back Emmett Smith. Fucking campaigned hard to get this dude (laughs) extradited to Washington. Oh man. (laughs) Uh. Louisiana wanted to keep O'Neal until after his trial on the stolen car charges, but Edna would not stand for it. Number 22 hounded the authorities at every turn, even sending letters and a petition to Louisiana mm-hmm. Governor Buddy Romer until she got what she wanted. Mm-hmm. O'Neill's returned to Washington to stand trial for Robin's murder. At another point, deputies Ed Troyer and Ben Benson videotaped an interview with O'Neill as part of a weekly public service show they were mm. involved with mm-hmm. on KMO radio in Tacoma mm. that was used to educate the public about police procedure.
1: Those guys sound familiar. Am I just tweaking? It yeah, was, definitely. Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> After waiving
0: his Miranda rights and agreeing to talk freely, O'Neill acknowledged that he had murdered Robin Smith. He refused, however, to say anything about Wendy Ogg or Lisa Schubert. Mm-hmm. A short time before O'Neill's trial was set to begin, tragedy struck again when Lauren Croston, Robin Smith's fiance mm-hmm. and the state's star witness against O'Neill unexpectedly died from ingesting an overdose of prescription drugs and alcohol mm. although Croston's death was officially ruled an accident, mm. Croston, according to Edna Smith, never got over Robin's murder and died of a broken heart after more than a year of being depressed and despondent <laughs> I mean that could be not both not. Let's say he died of a broken heart. Yeah. But well, he died of drug and alcohol overdose overdose that was brought on by a broken heart. Let's put it that way.
1: Uh-huh.
0: On Wednesday, January fourth, nineteen eighty nine, during jury selection, O'Neill abruptly, and to the surprise of everyone, announced that he wanted to plead guilty to murdering Robin Smith. To Edna's dismay, after being robbed of the right to a trial in her daughter's death, O'Neill received a life sentence which in Washington amounted to a maximum of 27 years and nine months. He is serving his time for that in Walla Walla. 27 years, bro? And nine months. Did that die,
1: do? You could do 27 years.
0: Standing bro. on your head. You can do it.
1: Are you serious, bro? That's not life at all.
0: O'Neill, however, can be released after serving as few as 18 years with mm-hmm. time for good behavior. The police felt cheated. And Edna, of course, was disappointed in the system because she had wanted him to stand trial mm-hmm. and was pushing prosecutors to old Sparky, yeah. which of fucking course you are because your yeah. daughter was kidnapped and killed and raped. And those three in conjunction
1: absolutely created capital punishment. That, you couldn't have the proper burial and you took the bullet like I let's get this sucker. I'm going to take the bullet. Not have a burial. We'll still have a memorial. Yep. Not not what I wanted, but I do it so we could get this nailless son of a bitch. And you know that's probably what she said too.
0: Twenty seven years. Mm. You can get out in eighteen.
1: That's some bullshit, though. I ain't gonna lie. That's, that's, yeah.
0: She viewed O'Neal's actions of pleading guilty mm-hmm. as an attempt to keep the sordid details of his crimes from becoming public knowledge. Mm-hmm. In May of the following O'Ne- <laughs> in May of the following year, O'Neill was brought to Portland, Oregon face trial for the kidnapping and rape of the 14 year old girl to which he maintained his innocence after attempting to shift the blame onto the girl for what had happened to her he was convicted on most charges at his sentencing hearing in august 1990 defense lawyer scott ravio Mm -hmm. claimed that there was a connection between o'neill's criminal history and his abuse of cocaine and meth whenever he is away from drugs o'neill has polite middle class values Despite Ravio's efforts, O'Neill was sentenced to 135 years in prison on a variety of charges stemming from the abduction and rape of the teenager. And Judge Kimberly Frankel ordered that the sentence run consecutively to the life sentence he received for the murder of Ryan yeah, Smith. That's been, why he's
1: in Oregon. I would have been just like the judge. As soon as I heard that bullshit, I don't care. You it's like when the they sentence. got
0: OJ for the uh, the memorabilia. memorabilia. It's like, man, you did years for nicole you didn't do years for (laughs) memorabilia to date the whereabouts of wendy Og remains unknown though investigators feel certain that she fell prey to o'neill's murderous impulses similarly the leah schubert murder remains on the books due to a lack of physical evidence linking o'neill to the crime though detectives are equally certain that he too killed her there are also other unsolved homicides in a number of states that authorities believe he may have committed O'Neill has expressed no remorse for any crime and has reportedly resigned himself to spending the rest of his life mm. in prison. Darren D. O'Neill, Currently in Oregon.
1: Yeah, you did some research. And you said at first you thought he was a Washingtonite. Mm-hmm.
0: Listen, everybody. That's going to do it for all of us yeah. here at the Bumblebutt Podcast yeah. X. X, 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 X. That has been the story of Darren D. O'Neill. I've been Adam. A-bomb that's been Herschel H-bomb and listen <laughs> we will see you the next time yeah. we create a baller episode alright so uh stay sexy bye yeah. <laughs>